Welcome back to Average Minds. Uh, today we have a very special guest, Ephraim Matos. Uh, Ephraim Matos uh, served, I believe, six, six or seven years in the United States Navy, uh, all of it in uh, Naval Special Warfare as a Navy SEAL. And he, afterwards, after uh, leaving the United States Navy, he started his own uh, nonprofit organization called Stronghold Rescue and Relief, or Stronghold Relief and Rescue. I apologize if I'm, if I'm butchering that. I'm going to allow him to correct me in a second. Um, and, and here he's today is talking to us, and he also has the uh, the book City of Death. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm without you know butchering anything else. I'm going to allow him to take the floor. Uh, Ephraim, thank you very much for joining us on Average Minds. And how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, AK. Thanks for having me on, dude. Appreciate it. Not a problem. So yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, we're gonna just jump right into this. First of all, you know, I apologize if I butchered your intro. Um, but why don't you set the record straight to make sure, you know, why don't you give us, you know, your little backstory real quick. And then we'll yeah, yeah. Uh, so, no, it was great. It was uh, fantastic. You made me sound cooler than I am. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the only correction I have is it, it is, you said it right the first time, stronghold, rescue, and release. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But other than that, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, right on. Awesome. All right. So let's, let's start from the beginning, man. Uh, first of all, uh, how old are you? Uh, I just turned 28, like, two or three days ago. Oh, well, happy belated birthday, man. Well, thank you so much. All right, so, all right, so you just turned 28, and you've done all of this amazing uh, this amazing stuff. So, we're going to start from the beginning, man. Um, where, where Originally, like, where are you from? Um, I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I grew up, uh, if anybody's from Milwaukee who listens, um, I, I grew up, like, basically right next to the airport. So, my entire childhood, uh, airplanes were, you know, usually about 100 feet above our house, uh, shaking the house as they were landing, uh, you know, at the airport. Um, but yeah, that's where I grew up pretty much my entire life. And uh, yeah, then joined the Navy at uh, at 17 and then went off to boot camp at 18. So what, what, I mean, were, were you always, did you always want to join the military? Did you always know you wanted to be in the Navy? What, what, what drew, drove you that in that direction? Yeah, so my dad, um, he, he had served in the Air Force Reserves, and he had also been in the Coast Guard um, when you know he was my age now. Um, but he, so so because of that, I was I was made aware of the of the, of the military, and it was it was something that I was always interested in, but I didn't really know much um, about it other than the Air Force. But as I looked into things, um, I decided I think when I was probably fifteen or sixteen, um, I just decided one day I was like, you know what, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I want to go do the SEAL thing, and a lot of that was uh, a lot of that was um, you know sort of influenced by the movie Black Hawk Down, you know. So I was looking into looking into you know the different units and all that stuff, and as I was going through and looking at stuff that you know, I'd see, um, you know, books about SEALs or whatever, and I just thought like, man, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go do that. Nice. And uh, yeah, <laughs> about the age of fifteen or sixteen, it was pretty clear to me that's exactly what I needed to do. That's a done deal for you then. All right, so so let's walk us through because I mean I mean you know uh, you know first you know some of the listeners you know like I mean for the most part um, why, why don't you I mean give us like a little because uh, uh, you actually were a SEAL so you know a lot of people when they hear you know special forces they think Navy SEALs or you know SEAL Team Six or you know like the you know for the most part because they are they're like all over the news and the movies and all that stuff and they do pretty amazing things I mean um, and, and but you know you actually did it so like. 
I mean, it was how hard was the training, and, and what was it like actually going, you know, going through the training and actually, you know, being a, a Navy SEAL. Well, yeah, I mean the the initial the initial training is called for for, for SEALs specifically is is called BUDS, which is an acronym that stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training, and. Uh, I mean, uh, the best one, the best way I can describe it is it's basically just like getting kicked in the nuts for six months straight. Um, it's you know, the, basically, basically the, the entire concept of it is they're, they they for the first basically six weeks, all they do is torture you to, to an extent. There's they have they have you you know you're you're, um, you're running obstacle courses and doing ocean swims and things like that. But for all intents and purposes, you're not really learning anything. You're just Showing up every day, carrying logs, carrying boats, getting surf tortured, going on ridiculously long runs, and then it all just repeats over and over and over again, and each day just gets worse and worse and worse, and you're not learning anything. You're not carrying a gun. You're doing nothing cool. You know, uh, It's just it's just that all they want to see is who's going to be standing at the end of the day, who's going to show up the next day, and it just goes on and on like that for weeks until you get to Hell Week, which is, um, you know, uh, pretty infamous, which is just uh, basically five and a half straight days of just uh, nonstop training around the clock. And um, if you're survive, if you if you're still standing at the end of that, congratulations, you get to continue training. Wow. And uh, then you and then you still have another, you know, uh, four four and a half months of of uh, training where they're they're still pretty harsh on you being in butts, um, but it's more of a more of a teaching thing. They're teaching you how to dive. And uh, do combat diving, and then they're teaching you about weapons and explosives and all that. And then once you graduate BUDS, um, you go on to SEAL qualification training, which is just six months of you know more tactical stuff. Um, that way, when you show up to your SEAL team, you don't look like a complete idiot. Um, <laughs> you still look like an idiot, but just not as much of an idiot. Right. And uh, yeah, then you're and then you're on an operational unit. Now, now to be clear. I, I was not. I was never on SEAL Team Six. I'm not nearly that cool. Uh, so my hats off and respect to those guys. Um, so I was just. A, I was just at a normal SEAL team, and um, you know, I never. I never had the opportunity to go work with the, uh, the SEAL Team Six guys. But well, I mean, yeah, I, it was. I mean, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I mean, I'm sure you know. I mean, everything you just said was incredible, anyway. So it's in and of itself just graduating and then you know actually you know making it through the whole program is amazing in and of itself so thank you for your service and that's awesome that you did that but i'll let you continue go ahead man absolutely um yeah so so i got to my seal team and then i uh was lucky you know at this point i was um right around the eight, yeah i was 21 I, tur- I turned 21 uh at my at my seal team and then we deployed to afghanistan and i turned 22 in afghanistan which you know my first deployment uh my first time in combat and it was just it was a really cool experience i really um i really loved uh you know being over there overseas um but one of the one of the things that i noticed when i got over there was i started just sort of seeing how uh you know civilians were kind of caught in the middle of what was going on over there um i was in one particular situation where um i almost had to kill two little girls that were wearing uh suicide backpacks so we believe that they had uh explosives in them and the way that that battle happened, it was it was obvious that you know the Taliban had sent these two little girls at us uh, for us with with the intention and hope that we would kill them. So and you know I, I'm sorry, and I have to, and, I, and I'm and I'm going to have to interject when you tell these stories because yeah, you, no problem. You know, I mean, you, I I've heard this before, and I and, and I feel like there are just there's certain people that don't want to believe that 
that that that is a real thing that there are people that the, that the Taliban that the enemy that you guys are fighting will do that and they will they will send children out to blow you guys up like like mm-hmm. that that's a real thing they think that like like if you if you were to tell somebody like you don't understand like they will literally put a bomb on a child and send that child out to hug you and then blow you all up like and they're gonna look at you like you're crazy like you're making it up to make them seem worse right. than they are but like you're you're <laughs> telling me right now that this is a real thing yeah and and so what was what was so shocking about it i mean obviously it's horrific but you know even though i had been through um you know seal training and had been mentally and physically prepared for you know these kinds of situations and you know thank god i had the, the level of training that i did and i was able to you know uh not i was able to act in, in such a way that you know we didn't have to kill the girls and, and the, i don't know where they're at today but um but i but i was shocked you know to, to be perfectly honest because you hear stories right you hear about hitler you hear about you know paul Pot, the Khmer rouge you hear about the uh, craziness and insanity of you know the North Vietnamese uh, during the Vietnam War. You hear about these things, you know uh, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. You you hear about all these things, but you never think you're going to see it, you know, for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw it for myself. I saw I saw this happening, and um, it just it, it really it really you know frustrated me because I was like, man, I really wanted I really want to help those people who were caught in the middle. Um, and that's, that's sort of when my, uh, my heart and my head started kind of changing a little bit more to what can I do to help the civilians using my background as a SEAL? What can I do to protect these people? Um, more so than what I'm already doing, you know? Um, because when you're in the military, you have to follow orders. Um, so I, you know, I started thinking about what, what else I could potentially do. Um, but yeah, so I went to, so I was in Afghanistan uh, that was uh, 2014, and it was funny when I was there. Um, you know, we of course, you know, being a being a, a special ops unit, we had um, you know pretty much un, un, unending, uh, unlimited air air assets. Meaning we could call in whatever air support we wanted. We had Apache gunships and A10s and F16s and F18s and drones and C130s. You know, whatever we wanted, whenever we went into combat, which is which is great. But uh, when I was in Afghanistan, toward the end of our deployment um, in that summer of 2014, we started hearing about this other group, this new terror organization we had never heard of, and it was called ISIS. Mm-hmm. And so we would go out on patrols, and sometimes we would call for air support, and they and we would we would hear back, "Hey, we can't send you the gunship because we had to send half the gunships to Iraq." And we're like, "What is going on? What are you talking about? Like, why are we lo- you know why are we losing our air support?" And so what was what was happening was this this organization called ISIS was taking over uh, Iraq and Syria and and, and those areas, and um, we didn't we didn't know we didn't, we didn't know much about it. Um, and then yeah, so I finished up that deployment, and then you know I, I uh, we go through a an eighteen months training cycle between deployments you know with, within the SEAL teams, and uh, so I did another eighteen month train up. And then my second deployment was to Southeast Asia. And during this deployment, um, most of our mission, you know, for for the most part was um, working alongside partner forces and, you know, sort of doing doing a lot of training, a lot of, you know, uh, what we called subject matter expert exchanges where we would, you know, we'd get together with an allied nation, you know, like one of their 
spec ops units and we we just do joint training together you know which is which is it's an important thing it's 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 important to do it um but <laughs> i was like I, I don't want to do this you know <laughs> i was like i signed up to go you know again thinking back to afghanistan i was like i signed up to go help the people caught in the middle um the people who were you know uh, suffering from these wars and on one of the um on one of the trips uh we spent uh six weeks i believe it was six weeks in thailand we spent six weeks in thailand and you know working with the thai seals and they're awesome dudes and it was it was was a really cool time but i it just didn't settle with me because right across the border in burma otherwise known as myanmar um there's there was a full-on war going on uh people were being raped and murdered and all kinds of horrific things were happening and and I, I, I was I, start, I personally started to get a little bit frustrated because I was like, hey, we have a full you know squad of seals or a full platoon of seals here in Thailand. We're we're fully funded. We've got weapons and you know <laughs> we're, we're fully trained. Which is right. an eighteen month workup. Let's you know, and, and we're only like a we're like an hour and a half you know helicopter <laughs> ride to to help this village that's being burned across this border. And of course, that's not the way the real world works. And, and I get that, but it was just it was still frustrating to me. Um, but I think it was during that deployment when I kind of, you know, really, really decided, I was like, I, I got to get out and I got to go, um, get out of the military and I got to go, you know, help, help people in these conflict areas, uh, who are, who are suffering and, you know, facing horrible, horrible, unspeakable things, just like those little girls in the, uh, in the, uh, you know, in the backpacks in Afghanistan. So wow. that was... Yeah, that's sort of that was sort of my journey, and then I got out of the Navy in uh, 20, 2017, early twenty seventeen. Early twenty seventeen, and and yeah. how and how long? Uh, so now, when you now, what is the what was the time frame between you uh, uh, getting out of the Navy and then starting uh, your Stronghold Rescue and Relief, or was so, it? So yeah, uh, so I I started doing the work of Stronghold Rescue and Relief. I didn't file the paperwork or whatever. <laughs> For you know, for probably a year, year and a half, but I immediately started doing the work of Stronghold Rescue and Relief, and so I actually I took terminal leave from the Navy and flew to Iraq uh, because ISIS again was uh, you know out there running around doing their thing. So um, I'm so sorry is- once once again. Remember I told you I was going to interject. So you said <laughs> you said during your leave period, and, and if I'm correct, uh, your leave is like it's like a vacation in the military. It's like a break, um, or what's the leave? You yes, said you said terminal so, leave. Because to me, terminal leave is sick, but I, I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, so so terminal leave is just when, if you have a bunch of leave days saved up, mm-hmm. and you're getting out of the Navy in, let's say, two months, but you have two months worth of leave days, you can leave, you can just leave early, oh, um, and they'll continue, okay. they'll continue paying your paychecks for the next two months, basically, until your leave is, is done. And um, so that's what I did. Uh, I took terminal leave, and I just flew to Iraq. So you, um, you as a as a person who just got out of the military, flew back to a war zone as a like I guess a, a civilian on your yes. own. Like oh yeah. my goodness, now that's oh my goodness. yeah, holy uh, well, shit. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was bizarre, but like I knew I knew it was the right thing to do. Um, I knew it was what I needed to do just uh, for myself because and and for the people there. Because it was like I was like I have no choice but to go. You know, I, I saw what was happening. I saw what ISIS was doing in, in in Iraq, and I was like, I have to be a part of the solution. I can't stand by, watch this violence, watch this these evil atrocities happen, and not do something. 
And when I went there, my, my intention was, um, when I went to Iraq, my intention was, I, I thought I was just going to be doing sort of humanitarian work. There were some other guys over there doing humanitarian work, you know, in the conflict areas. And I thought, well, I'll go, I'll go work with those guys and just volunteer and see, see what I can do. And um, I figured, you know, I figured we, there might be some shooting at some point. I figured, you know, a couple bombs might go off here and there. Nothing and you've I never seen like, before, I guess, yeah. Well, exactly. But, but to an extent, it was like, yeah, like, you know, if, if someone's going to be in a situation helping people where bombs are going off and there's occasional gunfire, you know, I feel like I'm the guy that should be there. Facts, yeah. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. <laughs> that's my background, right. right. So, and, that, and that's just how I was like, well, you know, let me, let me go help and see what I can do. Well, when I got to Iraq, um, man, it was, it was a thousand times worse than I thought it was going to be. It was, the war was exponentially more brutal than what I, than what I had seen in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And um, I, so I ended up, you know, again, being there as a humanitarian, but I ended up with this other group of guys um, basically embedded with the Iraqi army um, as they were pushing to clear Mosul. And at the time, and I, I still believe it's uh, still the case, but the, the battle for Mosul was the most deadly urban battle the world has seen since World War II. And I was caught up right in the middle of it on the front line uh, with the Iraqi army acting as a combat medic, basically. And I, I, was, not, I was not a trained medic during my time in the SEALs. I mean, we, get, we get really good medical training, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but um, I was not like an actual full-blown medic. But just the medic training that I had uh, was enough to basically qualify me as one in, uh, you know, in, in, in the Battle of Mosul with the Iraqi army because they didn't have medics. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we entered, um, we entered the city with the Iraqi army's ninth armor division and, uh, we fought it out for, you know, I was, I was in the city, I think for exactly 30 days, um, you know, ISIS was gunning down civilians and, you know, obviously shooting up the soldiers and we were treating all these guys. And you actually know what was really ironic, uh, inter- interesting timing here. Uh, it was three years ago today, three years ago today, June 2nd, um, that um, I got shot by ISIS. Three years ago today. Three years um, ago today. I, I, yeah. I don't know if I should say happy anniversary or yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, what kind of timing. That's wild. Yeah, I don't know. Now, now, you said the day you got shot. Now, I, okay, so I, I you know, I have your book. I read your book. Amazing piece of work. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about it because I would rather you talk about it. You know, it's your work. And then the other thing I was gonna say was is that there was a viral video on on social media on the internet that like like I said it was viral of of three guy of three guys who were working um, uh, that that were in that battle that you were talking about. Um, one, uh, Mr. Dave Ubin, I believe his name was, um, yeah. had had left the cover of a tank to go and run through a hail of gunfire. To rescue a girl that he saw, while two, at the you know two other uh, uh, bearded you know freedom fighters who were you know super badass c- provided covering fire from behind the tank. One of which I believe I'm talking to right now. Am I correct? Yes, that's true. Yeah, I was the I was one of those guys. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I'm okay. I was being facetious. Yes, that was you. Because because yeah. uh, I remember I, I I'd seen that video hundreds of times, and and it wasn't until. Uh, uh, you know the your organization started getting a little bit bigger, and then I started hearing you, um, y- your social media presence got a little bit bigger. That I realized I was like, oh my goodness, that's the same guy that I saw on the uh, that I saw on the uh, um, that has the, the Instagram, and I was like, holy crap, 
You know that yeah, that was yeah. incredible, and that, and that's and, and is that was the, was that the day that you got shot, or was that? Yeah, that was that was the day. That was yeah, three years ago today. Do you um, want to do you want to tell us about that or? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, we we you know I mentioned before you know the atrocities that I saw happening in um, you know in in Afghanistan. Well, when when I got to Iraq, ISIS was just a, it was just a whole another level of brutal. Um, and that morning, the morning of, of, of June second, we uh, June second, twenty seventeen, we found a massacre. And you know, er, er, earlier I had said, you know, you see, you, you hear about atrocities that like Hitler and these other people committed, and you think I'll never see something like that in my life. Thank God, right? Mm-hmm. But we, I woke up on the morning of June second in a bombed out building uh after being up all night treating wounded people in the darkness and walked to the end of the street and there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of bodies littering this basically a four-lane highway which had been turned into a uh, which had just been rubbled and uh, destroyed from all the fighting and um there was a pile of bodies i think it was about 20 or 30 bodies just piled on top of each other not intentionally piled on top of each other but that's just where everybody had died when they had been gunned down the day before and in the pile of bodies were several uh children and a couple of uh grown men who were pretty badly wounded but the children were fine some of the children had i don't know how they had survived but they had um and so you know we decided uh we have to go get them you know there's no choice but to go get these kids in this pile of bodies but the problem was the pile of bodies was about 75 or 100 yards away uh from isis headquarters and out in the open, completely out in the open, ISIS had the high ground, uh, about four or five stories of high ground in the buildings on in front of the killing field and then off to the right of the killing field. So they own the high ground and the flank. And, um, yeah, we were, you know, we had to go right into the kill zone. But so this, this massacre that I saw, um, they, it was all civilians, um, pregnant women, little girls, babies uh there was a an old man with his uh he was sitting in a wheelchair slumped over um there were yeah, another man had had the top of his head shot off and you can see his entire brain uh pregnant women little girls with their faces blown off babies with their heads bashed in from you know uh, their parents being shot in the back and the baby you know falling and breaking its head open on the on the concrete and in the rubble, and so like horrible, horrible stuff—the absolute worst stuff you can you can really imagine. Uh, yeah. um, but within that, uh, people were alive. There were, there were there were children who were still alive somehow, miraculously. So we decided, all right, we got to go do something to get them. Um, we were actually able to call the American military, who we were not working with. Again, we were working with the Iraqi military, mm-hmm. who was backed up by the U.S. military, but. Um, they agreed, they put a drone overhead and looked at the situation and then agreed to um, give us a smoke screen using an art, uh, from an artillery unit that was, I don't know, uh, you know, a, a ways outside of the city. And um, the Iraqi military agreed to give us one tank because uh, they didn't want to send any Humvees or anything else down this road because they knew, you know, probably anything that goes down that road is going to die for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we just decided, all right, it's time to go. But before, before, but before we were able to actually launch the mission, um, three of three of the four children died um, from heat exhaustion. 
before we were even able to launch the mission because we saw them in the morning and then we launched the mission sometime in the early afternoon. And by that point, the kids had been out there for, you know, 36, uh, 48 hours. I'm not sure exactly how long, but they'd been out there for a while and uh, no water, no food. And they all just died except for one little girl. And um, so we launched we launched the mission. The American military dropped a, a, a smoke screen for us which, again, doesn't stop bullets, and it's, it's a pretty thin smoke screen. And so ISIS immediately saw us come out into the middle of the street uh, behind this tank, and they just opened fire. Um, and I, you know, I, I say this often when I describe what happened. Um, I, I would never try to equate anything that I've been through to the, the invasion of Normandy, or I would never, uh, never try to do that. Um, but visually what I saw that day, what it looks like, looks like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, oh. where the enemy has the high ground, they're firing machine guns down on you, there are bodies littered everywhere, um, you're running through the smoke, uh, smoke ex- you know, smoke screen and explosions are coming in, this tank is firing, um, and bullets are just chopping, I mean, bullets are just hitting everywhere. I mean, and when I mean everywhere, I mean like just everywhere. They're landing in our feet, snapping past our faces, just everywhere, bouncing off the tank, of course. And then ISIS also started shooting mortars at us, um, which were, you know, exploding around us. And um, we we moved down this road right into, basically right into, we almost, you know, we're, we're, we're like maybe 50 to 75 yards away from ISIS at this point, uh, right in their backyard. Uh, right in their front yard, rather. Uh, they continued the fire. They continued firing on us the whole time, um, and then uh, we got to we got to where the pile of bodies was, and there was a little girl in there, and then there were two men up against a wall, and um, uh, two of us hopped out from behind the tank and um, gave, and gave covering fire, uh, while one of the other guys on the team went and grabbed the little girl, and then um, without covering fire. Um, myself and uh, the other guy who had been doing covering fire, we went out and got the uh, got the two men, um, pulled them behind the tank, and you know th- this entire time, I mean, ISIS is firing, the tank is firing its main gun. Um, it's, we're just choking on the smoke. The exhaust from the the exhaust from the tank, it, you know, is burning the hair off of our hands and faces. Um, like, like the small hairs, like it, it didn't like gross my eyebrows or anything, but, um, all the small hairs are just completely burned off of our hands and faces and arms. Um, just cause it was so hot. And, uh, so as soon as we got back behind the tank though, um, we had two men with us and a little girl and one of the guys carried the little girl. And then, um, uh, I, I, along with our interpreter, um, dragged, we're, we're trying to drag this old man. Uh, who had been shot really, really bad in the shoulder, and he still had a pretty bad bleed going on. Um, I was surprised he hadn't bled out by that point. But we tried to drag him on a table, tabletop back toward, you know, Iraqi army lines. Meanwhile, my other buddy, uh, Sky, he, you know, carried and dragged dragged a man as well. Um, well, as we, dragged this guy on a, as we dragged this guy on the tabletop, the, um, the Iraqi armed tank, which we did not have communication with, just started backing up on us Mm. and it wasn't stopping. There was no telling it to stop. It was just backing up. And so we had to stay ahead of it. Um, and which was actually a a lot more difficult, uh, a lot, a lot easier said than done. It was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. So we're dragging these people back and the, 
the the guy who was on the tabletop, he started he kept on slipping off. So I told one of the other guys on the team, I, I just I was like, dude, grab the grab the table. So he grabbed the table and started pulling it. Um, and I I grabbed the the man who was falling off the tabletop, and I tried to get him back onto the tabletop, but um, he 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 ended up just falling off. And there was just you know, he had you know two seconds to um, to try and get it back on the table, which is just not possible. So again, all this gunfire is coming in. Um, the man fell off the tabletop. So I ran over and I grabbed him and rolled him out of the way just as the uh, tank was about to crush him from his feet, you know, all the way up to his head. He was right in the line of, of the tank shred. Um, I rolled him out of the way. And at that point, you know, ISIS, they're continuing to fire. And I, there was, at that point, there was nothing I could do. For the for the guy, you know, we have this saying in the in the in the SEAL teams, and I'm sure it's similar in other you know uh, military and police units where um, we, we we say win the fight, self aid, buddy aid, corpsman aid, and what that means is if you're not safe, if you don't have a, a safe scene, you're not supposed to go and treat patients because you're just going to get yourself killed, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're in this, of course, this extremely dangerous situation, and. Um, I rolled the man out of the way of the tank, and the tank kept on backing up, and I just I had to make the call right then and there. Uh, there was just no way for me to go get the guy and pull him back in front of the tank, um, and there was there was just so much incoming fire that, I mean, I would have died trying to grab him, and there was just no way to save him. And, you know, I, I made a lot of decisions um, in my life where, and, and up to that point, especially in Mosul and whatnot, where... You know, you, you're like, hey, I'm going to make a decision to go save that person's life. I'm going to make a decision to go help that person. So that was my first time making a decision, basically, where I had to let somebody die. And um, so I just, I, you know, just kind of looked at the guy and, you know, basically just said, sorry, uh, there's nothing I can do. And um, I stepped, I stepped back behind the tank, um, and immediately, you know, my my decision, my my decision was confirmed as being the right decision because my leg got shot out from underneath me um, and I fell down behind the tank. And as I, as I laid, or as I like sat there behind the tank, looking at my leg, still kind of in, in shock, like I knew what had happened, you know, and the pain had set in, but I was still kind of stunned, like what, you know, like, oh my word, I just got shot. Like, you got to be kidding me. Um, well, um, the guy started screaming at me so I turned around and looked and the tank was about two feet away from crushing me. And so there was no, there was no option but to, uh, get up and keep moving. And that that part's on video as well. Um, so I just stood up and was like, all right, well, you know, uh, there's no choice but to keep going. So, um, yeah, I threw a tourniquet on my leg and, um, we continued back under fire and, um, we, we got basically parallel to where the Iraqi army lines were, but we had to cross this large open area. And there was just no way that the team, the, 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 the people who had the, the wounded people, the little girl and, and the one man, there was no way they were going to make it across the open fast enough without getting shot. There was just no way. So um, I started feeling really lightheaded and um, we needed a Humvee. We needed somebody to send the Humvee. And at this point, I'm useless to the team for the most part. So I was just like, all right, I'll go across. I'll run across this open area and get and, and make these guys send you guys a Humvee um, to, to evacuate the wounded. So, um, yeah, I just hobbled out there on my wounded leg and ran across the street or more like more like hobbled and skipped. Um, 
and ISIS opened fire. They were shooting at me. A lot of their bullets were hitting uh, basically just two or three feet behind me as I was as I was running, um, which is like which is a common mistake. They were basically whoever was shooting at me had their crosshairs directly on me, and so the bullets were landing just behind me because um, I was running. Um, so yeah, I made it across the street and um, started screaming at the Iraqis to uh, to send a Humvee out and grab the grab the. Uh, the, uh, the people and it was actually it was it, uh, the rest of the team but it was funny there was a, a French journalist was there by the name of Bernard and uh, none of the Iraqi soldiers would go but this French journalist uh, hopped in a Humvee drove out there under fire and picked up the team Holy and shit. yeah and I was like dude my hat is off to you sir because you know you're not a soldier your job is to stay out of things of all the people there you know he was the one person who had the opportunity to rightfully say I can't get involved, um, but he still he still did the right thing and you know and, and helped get the team out of there. Um, so yeah, a lot of respect for him. Yeah, um, so then after we rescued the little girl and this man, I was taken to a uh, basically like a bombed out mosque which was being used as a aid station, and um, I spent you know maybe. An hour or two there. Uh, work. I had. Uh, there's, it was funny. There were Mennonite. There were volunteer Mennonite nurses working there. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they. Uh, uh, so I had these like Mennonite ladies in like their bonnets and stuff in a bombed out mosque next to an Iraqi <laughs> army medic uh, treating my leg, and I was like, "This is just so like this is so bizarre." Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, then I spent the night in a Kurdish hospital. So I, I got evacuated up to northern Erbil, or northern Iraq, to a city called Erbil, uh, which is in Kurdish-controlled territory. Um, and uh, yeah, I spent the night in a in a in a ward filled with um, basically filled with the wounded uh, from Mosul, from in and around Mosul, and uh, spent the night. And the power went out in this hospital, and there were I don't know, probably thirty or forty other wounded guys in there who were uh you know kurdish and they yeah i mean i you know the it's hard to describe just the, the amount of like screaming and the um you know guys crying for their moms and things like that all night all night in the you know in this dark hospital um but and also too the the uh, the it's funny the the kurdish intelligence they heard about me so the Kurdish intelligence came and, and talked to me in the middle of the night. This guy just walks in there with a flashlight and he starts talking to me. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, you know, he's going to execute me or something. Um, but basically they were suspicious of me because of the fact that I had a beard and I was white. And uh, out there, the only bearded, the only bearded white men that you see out there um, are either U.S. soldiers, which I'm clearly not, um, or... ISIS terrorists, you know, from uh-huh. Europe or America or, you know, Chechnya or something. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of funny. So they came in and questioned me. It, it was it was fine, though. But, uh, yeah, man. And then um, it was during this time that I was like, yeah, man, this is, this is what I need to be doing. And, um, you know, uh, a few months later, went through the whole process of um, setting up, uh, yeah, Stronghold Rescue and Release and getting all that getting all that going officially and, and now we work in um burma and venezuela incredible incredible so so now now that your you know stronghold uh, rescue and relief is you know up and running and and um like what what is the just for for everybody who's listening 
what is the mission? What is the what is the priority of uh, so? Sure. So, uh, Stronghold Rescue and Relief's mission is to protect and care for families in conflict areas. And we specialize in building up teams of locals who can stand on their own in times of crisis. So, um, our primary, our primary, the primary thing that we offer is basically sending in guys with special operations experience to train up teams of people on how to defend themselves, how to do, you know, medical care. And then how to also set up and do humanitarian relief missions in these in these countries, and that's our so our main or the main resource that we provide people is our personnel, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, our, our, our like the, the the people who go in and help them, and we enable them to stand on their own. But again, our mission is working in the most dangerous places, um, in life or death situations, helping. Uh, the people who absolutely nobody else is going to help. Um, that's sort of that's where we go. So we have we have teams that go into Venezuela, the deepest, darkest, worst parts of Venezuela, who do medical work, um, and we have teams in Burma uh, who uh, go into the conflict areas and protect and evacuate civilians who are under direct attack um, from uh, the the Burmese government. Who is you know committing acts of genocide on you know on a monthly basis basically, um, yeah, and that's our, that's our main mission is to uh, protect these people. And um, it, there's nothing more that I mean there, there's nothing in this world that that, that I would that I would rather do, man. It's uh, it's uh, it's hard work. It's uh, frustrating, but it's uh, you know there's nothing more rewarding than I, yeah, than, I could imagine. than doing this. I could imagine. Yeah. And this is and, and for the and for everyone that that works for this organization, the, these are all volunteers, correct? They're, they're not like it's not like a con, it's not like they're not like contractors. Oh, great question. Yeah. So the none of the American personnel who work or go over and do work with Stronghold are are contractors or paid or anything like that. Um, the intention is in the future to have a small team of full time guys, you know, guys with you know uh, Ranger background, SEAL background, SF background. Uh, to to go over there and, and run these missions permanently because I, I I I've spent way too much time overseas <laughs> trying to, try to do it on my on my own. Um, but the intention is to have a, have a have a staff of guys that do this. But but no, we're not contractors. We're not. Um, we're, again, we're a nonprofit organization. The, the people that we help, the people that we help, do not pay us. We would never accept payment from them. Mm-hmm. Um, we never. We would never take anything from them. Our our entire mission is we are there to help them. And there to save, we're there to save their lives. We're nonprofit. So, um, and but the way the way that we support ourselves and the way that yeah we're able to run all these missions is just people who um, people who, who just donate uh, to what we do. And the way I have it set up is um, um, basically we we have a large group of people who each pitch in just a little bit. So um, if people, so anybody that's interested in supporting what we do. I always just say, you know, I always have people ask, like, what can I do? And or, I want to, you know, give a bunch of money, but I don't have a lot or, you know, and, and that's fine. I, I would never expect people to give or uh, give, give a lot of money or anything. Well, all I ask is if you're interested, um, 50 cents a day, right? That's equivalent of $15 a month. That's the equivalent of one meal at a restaurant once a month. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's it. And you shouldn't have to do more than that. Um, it's not your responsibility. It's no one individual's responsibility to, um, to, to, to take care of all these other people. If we each pitch in just a little bit, we can have a huge impact. And, um, 
it makes it so much more stable. And then also, too, if somebody's going through a rough time, you know, we're dealing with um, the, the the COVID situation, and people people are losing their jobs, or their you know their 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 income is you know substantially reduced. You know, and we've had we've had people email email us and message us and say, "Hey, I am so sorry. Like, I legitimately can't afford the dollar a day, or the you know seventy five cents a day, or the fifty cents a day that I'm giving. I just can't afford it anymore. Is it okay if we if I if I stop giving for now? And absolutely, that's absolutely okay because where where one person is no longer able to give, we have hundreds of other people who are continually able to give. And so that's the way I have have the organization designed and set up. Um, to, to go and do these things and provide these services for people who, quite frankly, you know, uh, most people will never meet, most people will never see. Uh, some of the missions we do uh, will never be talked about um, just because of the nature of them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we're doing what we have to do to prevent, you know, little girls from being raped and murdered, uh, entire villages from, um, you know, being destroyed and people being enslaved and people suffering from human trafficking, all these things. Um, yeah, so that's that's, uh, that's what we do. That's 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 such an incredibly noble cause, and 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 I can't honestly, I, I see nothing wrong with it. I mean, I I mean, I'm definitely going to donate, um, and I will, and I'm obviously going to you know leave the information for anybody else that wants to donate, you know, at the end of this podcast verbally, and I will also put it in the in the description. But I I wanted to I had a question because you know there's always you know those people. You know, I, do you ever get any pushback from any like human rights groups or people that say like, "Oh, well, why are you over here doing this, involving yourself?" And do you ever get any pushback from anybody for for doing what you're doing? Um, I, I've gotten a little bit of pushback, nothing from anybody who I, I've never gotten pushback from anybody who understands what we're doing. I, I will get questions for sure. Mm-hmm. People say, "Well, like, what are you doing? Like, what, what?" You know, and that's and that's totally fair. And I want people to ask questions. Um, the the thing is, once I'm able to explain what we're doing, I've never had anybody go, "Oh, I don't support that." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the way the, the way that I or the, the way that we run missions, I, I make things very, very clear. It's a very clear distinction. Um, we are humanitarians there to help these people. Mm-hmm. We will carry weapons if we are in a place where weapons are a necessity to survive. And if attacked, we absolutely will defend people who are under attack. And I, and I make no apology for that, and I never will. Yeah, you should. Um, Absolutely. And, and with that being, however, with that being said, we will never, I, I never have and I never will buy a weapon or a bullet. I, never, I will never do that um, because that's not what we're there to do. We're not there to add to, the, to those things. Um, that's, that's, that's not what we do. So, um, yeah, that, that's a great question, and each mission is different too. So, for example, um, our teams in Burma, they're armed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're made up of locals. Again, it's locals. It's people who live there already. They speak the language. It's their villages that are being destroyed. It's their people who are being oppressed. We're just there to support them, help them organize, and build up teams of uh, build up local leaders too, who um, are able to make decisions on their own. So they don't have to call me. I don't, I don't. I don't have to get a message and say, "Hey, do we have approval to you know go protect this village from being burned?" Well, no, of course, go do it. You know? like, yeah. Go go do what you need to do. Um, but each mission is different. And then also, like, for example, in Burma, or excuse me, in Venezuela, uh, none of our teams are armed. Mm. It's, that's a strictly medical mission because it's a very different situation and um, a w- w- way, way different geopolitical situation going on there. So um, none of our teams are armed. They're just doing strictly, uh, you know, um, humanitarian medical uh, type, type things. 
and um, we just don't have the resources or um, anything to, to really get involved if the government's trying to, you know, trying to like oppress people uh, in a violent way. We just don't have the means or whatever to um, really resist that. So we resist by saving people's lives and medicine and uh, really being uh, covert about what we do over there. I, I really, that's incredible. I, I don't see how anybody could have any problem or argue with that at all. Yeah, and, and like I said, people people ask questions, and I, and I encourage questions, um, and I'm always happy to, to answer questions about about what we do because I get it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit weird, and people, are, oh, not weird, but like it's a little, people can get a little bit weirded out by it where they're thinking, oh, you know, you got a bunch of, you know, like you're trying to be Rambo, you know, yeah. like, are you guys contractors, you guys mercenaries? You're like, no, 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 like we're a volunteer. Uh, but basically, the, the way I look at it is like we're 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 basically volunteer medics who will carry guns if who will carry guns if we're in a situation where we need to carry guns and that's 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 what we are and Very none of the people will uh yeah and we ne- again we never take a dime from anybody that we help we're there to help them 100 percent. that's yes that, that's that's incredibly noble so okay and okay so we went from you know you, you know you're, you're growing up and you joined the navy you became a, a seal you served honorably you 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 uh you you Upon exiting the United States Navy, then you went overseas and had your first taste of humanitarian work. You knew that that was for you. You started your own organization, Stronghold Rescue and Relief. You know that 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 uh, organization is thriving. It's it's doing well, and you you know you have a very good mission, and 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 you and you have very good values that, that support that mission. You have a very good group of guys that are working with you on that mission. Um, and and you re- and then I, you recently uh, have came uh, came out with a with a book, I guess, uh, detailing basically, you know. Everything that we talked about, you want to talk about the book real quick? Yeah, um, so the book I wrote is called City of Death, and it's just about my time leaving the Navy to um, that rescue mission that I talked about. Well, I don't, I don't go into um, uh, at, at that time I hadn't filed the paperwork and officially founded Stronghold, so that's that's not covered in the book. Okay. So it's pretty much just from the. It's basically it covers three months from. Uh, from the from the day that I left the Navy to the day that I got hit and you know flew back to the states, um, at, you know uh, after after Iraq. Um, so the reason the book is called City of Death, I know it's a, a very intense name, but um, again going back to it, it's 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 named after it's named that way simply because of the historical significance of that battle, the deadliest battle since world the deadliest urban battle the world has seen since world war ii and i was there and shot on the deadliest day of the deadliest battle so that massacre that we came across was the biggest massacre committed inside mosul um during the entire war and um there were i think just in that one uh, area alone there were i believe about 170 bodies um right then and there but all the day prior, uh, we had seen dozens and dozens and dozens of wounded people who had who had died, um, who had been shot in the massacre and had not survived, um, you know, more than an hour after they had been uh, wounded. So that was the again the deadliest day of the deadliest battle uh, the world has seen since World War II, uh, urban battle. And so that's why I call it City of Death. But what's really cool about it was um, I had the opportunity to work with. Scott McEwen, who wrote American Sniper with Chris Kyle. So Scott McEwen is the co-author of the book, and it was really cool to be able to learn uh, from him about the, you know, the, the, the just about storytelling and writing. And it was it was really really cool to uh, to be able to work with them 
Um, obviously, American Sniper is an incredible book, and yes. um, so that was that was a really neat experience. And yeah, the book's available Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, anywhere. Yeah, pretty really much anywhere cool. and everywhere. <laughs> yes, I, I have a copy myself, and I'm going to to get right into that. I got one, and I and I and I'm going to pop that sucker open, and you know, allow myself to be engulfed by the story. So, awesome. so. Um, you know, I, you know, and you, you seem to have your head on straight. I mean, for such a young guy, you've accomplished so much. You know, you've been a lot of places. You, you've seen the world. Um, you've seen true oppression. You've seen, uh, you know, true, true violence and, and the worst in human nature. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure you knew this question was coming. Um, I, I got to ask you, man, what's your take on everything that's been going on recently with, uh, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd um, and or you know the murder of George Floyd and um, and in the subsequent riots and you know and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and and I think you know when when I look at these different when I look at a situation like this, um, my my motto and my, my starting point, I, I where I try to come from. I'm human, so of course I have natural biases, and we all have emotional reactions when we see people getting killed, and you know it's it's it's, it's an emotional horrific thing. What I try to do is I try to come at these situations from the truth is somewhere in the middle. That's that's my that's what's going on in my head when I when I look at these situations. That's what I, that's the way I try to think, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, what happened to George Floyd is horrendous, completely unacceptable, and the police officers involved in that need to be prosecuted and need to be dealt with. Agreed. Um, however, what I also disagree with was, and I'll be perfectly honest here, George Floyd did not act, um, he did not act appropriately on the day that he was killed. Now, that does not mean that he deserved it, because that's not true at all. He deserved to have his day in court. He's innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, however, if you look at the probable cause report, which is the report that the police put together to justify the arrest of Officer Chauvin, the man who sat on George Floyd's neck, um, in that report multiple times, um, George Floyd made some bad decisions. And again, I'm not saying he deserved death because he doesn't. That's completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he deserved to have his day in court, uh, maybe get fined, you know, whatever. Um, so what, what I, when I look at this, I just want people to look at the, try to look, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. The police messed up 100%. George Floyd also messed up 100%. And both parties made bad decisions that led to a horrible, horrific outcome. And um, reform needs needs to happen on all fronts, on the police front, on the cultural front. Um, people need to understand that hey, you, you don't get to resist arrest. You do not get to you know give the officers problems. And if you're an officer, you don't get to sit on people's necks. What you, like what are you doing? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's completely that's completely unacceptable. So you know, obviously, so so I think that's that situation. I think I think both parties made bad decisions. Obviously, the police made worse decisions that had worse. Outcomes, 100%. Um, now, of course, uh, the violence that's going on right now. Um, people have a right to protest, and people should protest, and people should take to the streets, and people should organize and um, be enraged and upset by by the death of George Floyd. They absolutely should be. And the people who are, I think it's a minority of people, the minority of people who are these violent, thug 
um, Antifa rioters who are stealing and looting and shooting police officers. There was a police officer, you know, I think it was Las five Vegas. or so police officers in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, were shot. There was a police officer shot here in Milwaukee. Um, there's there's been all kinds of violence, and that is completely completely one hundred percent unacceptable. And that violence from the rioters takes away from the legitimate protests of the peaceful protesters who are out there trying to have their voices be heard. And this violence is completely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was unacceptable for the police to commit acts of violence, and it's completely unacceptable for these other people to commit acts of violence. Now, going forward, you know what needs to be done. In, in, in my opinion, um, just my just my two cents, and it's you know it's easy for me to to to, to say this because it's like I'm not in the middle of it. But I think people need to go home. Go home. Um, if anybody's listening to this, and I, I don't know when the podcast will actually air, but you know, if people are still out there protesting and, and, and whatnot, I support your right to protest. But what's happening is is these protest gatherings are turning into violent mobs. Mm-hmm. And stay, in my opinion, stay away from it. And the reason for that is, um, rightfully so, Officer Chauvin was already arrested. Like he was already arrested. The police officers, the other police officers who were involved, are under investigation and have already been fired. Not put on, not put on, you know, probation. They've been fired, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. And justice is in the process of happening. Justice takes time. Let the judicial system do its job. And the more people are in the streets, the more people are yelling and screaming and getting emotional. The more opportunity this minority of of of, of violent people has the opportunity to infiltrate these larger groups. And cause problems, and then innocent people get caught in the crossfire. There was a uh, one one man. I, I forget his name off, off, top, off the top of my head, but he you know he ran a barbecue place, um, and that that where, where police officers were often able to eat for free, right? Mm-hmm. And he was one of the people that was killed when police returned fire after they were getting shot at, right? Jesus. So at this point, your voice has been heard, um, the, and, and and rightfully so. And the police officers have uh, the the. The guilty police, or the, the presumably guilty police officer, right? He, he, has, he has his day in court as well, but rightfully so, he was arrested. The other people were fired. So my 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 plea for people is just to stay home. Um, just please, please vote. Please, you know. Uh, hold on, uh, Ephraim. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you cut out. My bad. You, you no, cut no, out. No, no, it's all good. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. No, you're good. Um, um, but yeah, I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is um, I support people's right to protest and I want them to protest. Please do. Um, but I think we've reached a point where this these protests are getting increasingly violent. And, you know, I know that tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and there's going to be more clips of violence happening and more looting happening. So... The officers have already been dealt with. The officer, officer Chauvin will stand trial. So my, my, my plea and my request for people is just, just go home, use social media as your voice, and avoid these situations because it's a tragedy when, you know, for example, that like I was talking about the, the, uh, the man who ran the, 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 the barbecue stand where police officers ate free. It's a tragedy that he was killed. It's, 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 com- it's completely senseless. So don't let that be you. Please go home. Let the, let the, let the justice system take care of itself and uh, avoid, avoid the violence because there's no, there's no point. You're not accomplishing anything by you know, being out on the side of the road when, when Antifa rioters are throwing bricks through windows. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just uh, 
it's, it's heartbreaking to see this in my country, you know, where, uh, you know, that I fought for. I love liberty. I love freedom, uh, obviously. And it's heartbreaking to see what happened to George Floyd. And it's heartbreaking to see what's happening to our society and our nation as a whole. So just, I, I just wish people would, you know, take a step back, stay home and um, let, let the justice system uh, continue working as it already is. That, that is, I, I think that is a, a very rational and level-headed response to everything that's been going on. Um, I will tell you that, um, you know, I, I, you know I'm, ang- I'm angry, you know, about the entire situation, but I agree. I think, um, you know, I think, I think that everybody should just, you know, take a step back. You know, you, you, the, the way I feel about it is, is like, if I, if I just, you know, take it to the lowest common denominator, you know, instead of, you know, everybody getting angry about this, like, just think about it if you were in a relationship with somebody and you get into an argument with your significant other, you know, and it makes you mad, you're you're liable to say something that you don't mean. You don't make rational decisions when you're emotional. And I think, and I think that's what's happening is that a lot of people are very emotional, rightfully so. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be uh, angry or emotional, but I think that for their sake and for the sake of, you know, justice for George Floyd, as well as, uh, you know, the, the, the depiction of, you know, African-Americans and everybody in the, you know, the peaceful protesters, you know, they should, you know, they, they should just, you know, allow, you know, the process to start to just unravel because now for the, for the guys that are still trying to do peaceful protests, you know, like you said, you know, you have these thugs, these small factions that are, that are just, you know, in, infecting them. And then, and then they're the ones that are going to get the focus and then everybody's going to get the blame for it. Which is very unfortunate, you know. Exactly. So I mean, if, if you if you respect George Floyd, if you truly care about him, if you truly want his memory to mean something, then you have to stop the violence, and you have to prevent the violence, and you have to stop the looting and the rioting. That that's completely unacceptable. Uh, I, I, I obviously I've, I've never met George Floyd, um, but you know, like his, his brother got up and talked about uh, George George Floyd's brother got up and talked uh, to a crowd. And he was just saying the same thing. He was like, George, he's like, George would not want you to be out here riding. He's like, what are you doing? Peacefully protest, yes, but he wouldn't want you to be out here riding. We don't want you to be out here riding. Stop, stop tarnishing his name with these terrible acts of violence and stop, and stop, you know, stop protesting or riding rather against police brutality by doing things that are brutal yourself. You know, you're fighting fire with fire and you're only going to make it, you're only going to make the entire world burn. You know, in, in that in that way. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and 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 at the end of the day, we just we just want we just want peace, man. We just want peace. We just want equality. We want peace. We want to be treated fairly. You know, we want everybody to you know to love and care for each other as God intended. You know, but um, Ephraim, absolutely. Thank you, thank you so much for you know for coming on and and talking with us. You know, uh, great story, great insight on uh, everything. Uh, we thank you very much for your service. I, you know, myself and obviously everybody's listening. Appreciate everything that you've done for this country and what you continue to do, you know, around the world with Stronghold Rescue and Relief. Um, and I, you know, I hope you. Hopefully, you're staying safe. We're going. I'm going to make sure that I drop the information. I'm going to let you say it again, but I'm going to make sure that I also uh, put the information, you know, the links to your organization, as well as your book uh, in the description of this podcast. So why don't you go ahead for the audience one more time, give us uh, your organization and your book and your Instagram yeah, handle if you want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me on, dude. I really appreciate it. Yeah, if people want to find out more about what we do, uh, they can go to strongholdrescue.org to, to find out about Stronghold. Um, and my Instagram handle is just at, at from Matt Toast. And then yeah, my, uh, the name of the book is City of Death, Humanitarian Warriors in the Battle of Mosul by myself and Scott McEwen. And uh, yeah, that's how people can reach out um, if they you know, want to learn more about what we're doing. That's awesome. All right, Ephraim, take care, man. Um, have a great one. And for all of you, rest of you guys, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, peace. Awesome. Thanks, AK. Appreciate you, bud. All right. Later.